Playback on RTE Radio 1. Sponsored by FexcoCurrency.com. Your route to great rate travel money at participating credit unions. Good morning. Right, let's get into it. On Thursday afternoon, a statement from RTE stating that between 2017 and 2022, Ryan Tuberty was paid €345,000, payments that were not declared to the Oireachtas or to the public. In its front page coverage, the Irish Times reports that the implications for RTE go beyond immediate embarrassment, with several unnamed high-ranking government ministers suggesting that the controversy effectively quashes any chances of an increase in funding for the broadcaster. And in a piece inside today's Times, Hugh Linehan writes about how a recent Reuters report, which pointed to a decline in public trust in the media, noted that that decline was less precipitous in Ireland than elsewhere frittering that goodwill away with this sort of behaviour is a disgrace, he writes. Terry Prone raises similar issues in her piece in the Irish Examiner under the headline The Reputational Damage Dwarfs the Sum of Money Involved. She writes that the Late Late Show is sufficiently influential to attract the thornish that onto one of the last episodes hosted by Mr Tuberty to answer questions about his life, career and future. It still matters and it still must be like Caesar's wife above reproach. Ditto Mr Tuberty, the paternal, always trustworthy personality who shepherd, shepherded his audience through the pandemic. Writing in the Irish Independent, meanwhile, Fiona Sheehan likens the episode to Pork Flynn's appearance on The Late Late Show during his time as European Commissioner when he talked about the burden of running three homes. Except a Ryan Tuberty moment is when someone is paid so much they don't notice the extra cash, Sheehan writes. Also in The Independent, Donald O'Donovan states the view that this goes way beyond what Tubbs was paid for his work. It points to a failure of governance. While in another piece in that paper this morning, Melanie Finn writes that internally those working in RTE are said to be furious about the whole controversy and are demanding answers from those in charge. Fiona Kelly with what it says in the papers from yesterday's Morning Ireland. So many questions about governance, accountability and trust. On Morning Ireland, Anya spoke to Brian Stanley, Sinn Féin Chair of the Public Accounts Committee. This isn't happening in any kind of a dodgy backstreet operation. Uh, this isn't Elby and Rodney. This is actually the national broadcaster. And I'm personally very, very disappointed because we've had RTE, uh, the senior people from RTE, including D Forbes, in front of our committee a number of times in the last three years. And we were given firm commitments that pay across the top 10 were being, top 10 presenters were being, was being reduced. Not alone did that not happen in this case, in actual fact, there was 75,000 being added on. There was 50,000 being added on that, uh, you know, that was deliberately concealed here. Mm-hmm. And this is at a time that when RT was coming in to us, uh, RT senior management pleading that the, you know, that the finances of the organisation were in such bad shape. And that's the context here. And he had many questions. You know, what I'm scratching my head and wondering about is that why did it take so long for it to come out in, in, in an internal audit? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, this is going on for five years. And I think that there's huge questions around around governance and accountability. We don't need, you know, half the story or a quarter of the story. RTE senior management... So who do you want to hear is, from an RTE then? Well, I think the very first person we need to see is Dee Forbes. She's still in the pay of RTE. That's my understanding, according to the statement that was issued by the broadcaster yesterday. She's on the payroll till the 10th of uh, 10th of July, as I understand it. So there's a few weeks to go here yet. I'd like to see her coming out and explaining exactly her role in this, 
what she knew about it and why she misled me and other members of the Public Accounts Committee, not once, but on a number of occasions over the past two and a half right. or three years. They're the questions that need to be answered. And answers were being demanded across every programme on RTE. If only they could find someone to take the call. Well, we did seek a spokesperson from RTE senior management and the board for the programme today. None was put forward and we also submitted a series of questions to the RTE executive. And if we get any answers to those questions before midday, I'll bring them to you. Now, in a moment, we're going to speak. However, in studio with Colm, Tom Lyons, journalist with The Currency. Arguably, the the biggest loser in all of this is the licence payer and people who expect better from a public service broadcaster on whom they're supposed to rely for full transparency according to its mission statement. Uh, Absolutely. I mean, this is a station which regularly uh, calls people to account and demands transparency. And when you see this type of carry on within the organisation, that undermines all the good journalists and all the good work that is done within RTE because they're going to turn around and say, but sure, look at yourselves, guys. Uh, And that is very damaging to to a station which during the pandemic did so much good work. And it's very damaging to a station that that is receiving, you know, 300 million every year, turnover 300 million and about 200 million of that coming from 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 the licence fee. Also with Colm, Labour Party media spokesperson, Senator Marie Sherlock. Like these are incredibly serious issues of incompetence and an absolute betrayal of trust of of the workers. And in particular, I'm thinking of of the staff, of the employees of RTE who have been asked, and you, you know, you documented some of it that there, you know, have been asked to take pay cuts, who've had seen pay increases limited. Um, and and you know, the reality is on the late late show that the NUJ were saying yesterday, you know, a, a researcher on the late late show. Um, it takes them 12 years to earn 55,600 euros. Now, the sums that we are talking about here, the 75,000, the 80,000, are far in excess of that. And I, and I think there are huge answers now, both for the, the DG of, 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 of RTE, but also for government as well. And while it's important that the PAC does examine this, I actually do think it's a bigger issue now. It's, it ha- there has to be a whole of government response to our national broadcaster, because as I say, I think there's a real danger of a fatal crisis, crisis of confidence in it. And then just before midday, the first in what would turn out to be a series of statements. I think we really need to be I ambitious. Have, I have to interrupt you there for some breaking news. The RTE, as we just got an urgent statement, the RTE board has issued a statement. It says, the RTE board confirms that Dee Forbes, the Director General, was suspended from her employment on Wednesday, the 21st of June, 2023. There are processes ongoing and RTE must be mindful of its legal responsibilities and the rights of individuals. RTE will not be commenting further on this issue at this time. Now, I don't think... Now, on Thursday, just after the news broke during drive time, a short statement from Ryan saying he was surprised at these payments and that this was a matter for RTE and he had no involvement in RTE's internal accounting treatment. He could not answer for their mistakes in this regard. However, the decision was made for Ryan not to broadcast at nine on Friday. And in a day that sent shockwaves throughout RTE and in the wider public, Liveline opened the faders to gauge the public mood. Here are just some of those voices. First of all, let's make one thing quite clear. These were hidden payments. They were not above board or transparent. I'd like to know 
how could the auditors sign off on the previous year's accounts? And I also believe that Ryan himself has a lot to answer for personally, as well as RTE's senior management. Um, his statement is simply not credible, Joe. Um, I suppose I, I'm not willing to be angry. I'm just really disappointed. And mm-hmm. um, we rely on RT to be impartial, to stand up for the truth. They have a slogan on TV, the, the truth matters is what comes yeah. up. That's your slogan. It's the, the trust that's been broken. It's like mm-hmm. I, I've watched the late late since I was a child. It's just like the friend in the corner. And now this friend has just there. There are obviously people in the organisation who are very high standards, but there are... Mm-hmm. Some people, which is very hard to accept, that don't have those same high mm. standards. I'm just ringing to express my complete and utter anger, and that's the only word for it. It's just anger at the the whole situation regarding Mr. Tuberty and RTA. I work in the public service. I don't even get the price of a cup of coffee when I'm meeting my clients. I don't even get a price of a coffee. If there's any irregularities in our accounts, we pay that money back. You know, this is just outrageous. But the the optics of this is just dreadful. Bitterly disappointing. I know he did nothing illegal. It's the spirit of probity being let down and the fact that generations of children and young people would look up to him because of his championing of the rights of people on the margins. That's what really gets mm. to me. I 100% disagree with her. His character is still intact. Mm-hmm. Um, it was whoever was supposed to disclose it within mm-hmm. uh, the higher okay. um, echelons. Ryan's been hung out to dry. Ryan Tuberty, if he's listening, which I presume he probably is, if he has the day off, Ryan, as a gesture of goodwill, I would suggest you pay back that overpayment, the €345,000, back to the taxpayer. Because the taxpayer gets letters in their door threatening jail of two months jail for not paying the TV licence of €160, and Ryan can swan off into the sunset, Joe. And I think everyone now must feel a little bit either let down or very angry this morning. I can't believe that this witch hunt is is taking place. I can't imagine how Ryan must feel today. I'm absolutely stunned the way a man can be taken down and his character taken apart. Like, I mean... We are a nation of begrudges. This is not a witch hunt about against anyone. Okay. What it is, it's about transparency with public money being spent by a semi-state. It's not about a begrudgery, as what as somebody has said. It's not. It's not personal. It's. Mm-hmm. it's there's a responsibility in RTE to be above board with taxpayers' money. From Liveline, in RTE itself, shock and anger. The people who've been talking to me are absolutely livid. They're infuriated by this news. They're more angry today than they were yesterday, if that's possible. Uh, Members feel completely betrayed by RTE. Uh, Many feel that they've lost any trust that they might have had in RTE's top brass. And what we want now is we want answers. We want to know who sanctioned this payment, who signed off on it, who knew about this payment. And we want accountability uh, because we feel we need accountability uh, 
if RTE corporately is to get over this. And it's really important to say that this is about corporate governance. This has nothing to do with the ordinary members that I represent. It has nothing to do with the SIP2 members that I work with. And I'm talking about the journalists, the researchers, low-paid researchers who work on programmes like The Late Late Show, make people like Rand Tuberty look good because they are slogging way behind the scenes on low pay. This has nothing to do with any of those people. This is an issue of corporate governance. And this is important because I know this is going to lead into a whole question of public funding for RTE. Emma O'Kelly, who is chair of the Dublin Broadcasting Branch of the NUJ, on the news at one yesterday. But where to now, particularly given RTE's dependence on the licence fee and its petitioning for an increase in that fee? On Drive Time, Arthur Beasley of the Irish Times. But can, can I ask you where we go from here in terms of investigations and what the what politicians are calling for, given that they were misled for a number of years? Well, I mean, this is it, it's usually that it, it, it's open season at RTE. So you, you have this committee, a virtual committee meeting that's taking place. You have a clamour from the Public Accounts Committee to hear from RTE. Uh, that's going to happen pretty soon. And then you have this whole question of RTE's push for additional public funding from the government and uh, pretty clear signals, albeit quietly, uh, within government that um, uh, that's now uh, pretty much off the agenda from, from, the, from the perspective of people looking at what has happened in the last 24 hours. And then, just when you thought maybe the day was winding down, no, more statements. At 20 to 5, this. Which is breaking news, a new statement from Ryan Tuberty, who's at the centre of uh, this story as well. As in essence, while he had no responsibility for the corporate governance in RTE, he says, I should have asked questions at the time and sought answers as to the circumstances which resulted in incorrect figures being published. I didn't, and I bear responsibility for my failure to do so. For this, I apologise unreservedly. He also said he is looking forward to being back on the radio. With Cormac in studio, Irish Secretary of the NUJ, Seamus Dooley. In fairness to Ryan, uh, I think that the, the thrust of his statement yesterday was to say that he couldn't shed any light on how RTE processed uh, the money. And what about his statement today then? He said that when you look uh, from 2012 to today, his pay was cut by approximately 40%. He says, I have no um, uh, responsibility for the corporate governance in RTE or how or what they publish in their accounts. I don't accept that. I'm not going to cry for him in relation to the pay cut. What I would say is, and he does acknowledge, that the figures were wrong and he should have corrected it. The figures that were published by RTE in relation to the cut that he took and the earnings were there were wrong and he had a responsibility to correct that. I've met this Should he be yet. back on air? Uh, I, I have no view in relation to that. That's a matter for Ryan and RTE. I'd like to have, have him back on, comp- on campus to hear the anger uh, felt by uh, felt by his colleagues. Are you, the calling, anger is are you calling on him to meet staff? I, I'm not actually because to be honest it would be very easy to make this about Ryan Tuberty and this actually is about corporate governance in RTE. I agree with Kieran in part. I think there needs to be a comprehensive review of corporate governance in RTE above and beyond the Grant Thornton uh, examination in particular and I think there's a role for PAC in this, an examination of the practice of third party engagements. I don't see why RTE uh, deals with, has to deal with an agent. I have a real concern about that. We've expressed that concern over many years. But I would also say this. 
it's very dangerous if the political view is that we administer some sort of punishment beating to RTE as a result of corporate failure rather than dealing with the corporate failure. But, but how- and then at 5.20, another one. We've just been handed a statement for, on behalf of Dee Forbes, who's uh, the Director General. of. In brief, she said she had fully engaged with the board since this matter arose and had participated in the review conducted by Grant Thornton. She said she was proud of her contribution to RTE and would be making no further public comment at this time. And then finally, and I do mean finally, after a very long day, comment from the executive. RTE's Deputy Director General Adrian Lynch spoke to David McCullough on the 6-1 News. He was asked about the barter account arrangement at the centre of this controversy and also how Ryan Tuberty's earnings were underdeclared by RTE. We don't know. So Grant Thornton uh, are currently investigating that. Uh, to find out what has occurred there. So that process is underway. And how long so, will it take? Uh, I'm not sure about the timeline, but it's, it's going to be days uh, rather than weeks. Adrian Lynch was also asked why Ryan Turbody is off the radio. Uh, it's for editorial reasons, David. I mean, RTE, as the public service media organisation, uh, cannot have an individual on air who is at the centre of a public controversy. You know, we have obligations to be independent and objective. So you can't do a show where it opens up with what it says in the papers, where you're in the centre of that story. Okay, so how long, will, how long will that last for that? Because um, you're, you're tell, telling me you don't know how long this investigation yeah, is going to uh, Right now, Ryan Turbury will not be on the radio next week, and that was communicated today. That was a decision by the executive board and myself. Yeah, but when will he be back? I'm not in a position to say that, David. And the Deputy DG, Adrian Lynch, was also asked how much damage has been done to RTE and to licence fee reform. In terms of that, I think what we need to do is actually rebuild trust here. I would say as an organisation, we're a public service media organisation. We hold people to account all the time and we expect answers to questions. We need to provide those answers ourselves. This has done significant reputational damage to RTE. I would say this is a corporate governance issue. Um, this is not an issue of RT staff or you know them in terms of the quality of output that is produced by the national broadcaster every day of the week. Back in a bit. Welcome back. Well, after all that, let's take something of a breather. Lyric, we love you for this. <laughs> The summer solstice marked by an ambient orbit broadcast live from the Lake of Loch Gur in County Limerick. Thank you. On Sunday morning off the coast of Newfoundland, the submersible Titan was one hour and 45 minutes into its journey down to the wreck of the Titanic when it lost contact with the surface.
On Thursday evening, it was confirmed that a catastrophic implosion had resulted in the deaths of all five people on board. It was a desperately tragic end to what should have been a very great adventure. On Wednesday's News at One, Gavin spoke to Dr Joe McInnes, scientist and physician, and among the first to die for the Titanic wreck. And while the risks of undertaking such a journey to the depths of the ocean are all too clear, equally the experience of that journey can be momentous. Dr McInnes, you've been down there. Tell us what it's like. Well, it takes... Uh, I've been down in two subs. The, the uh, French research sub called Nautil and the uh, Russian research sub called Mir. And the, the experience is quite the same. You... you climb in through the hatch and there's three people inside. You're surrounded by dials, gauges, switches and screens and the ballast is uh, filled. The water slips into the ballast and gravity pulls you down to the, towards the center of the earth. It takes about two, two and a half hours and you go through the uh, Gulf Stream which is pretty warm and then the, the uh, the Labrador Current, which is, is pretty cold. And w- what is tr- so extraordinary is that you look out through the viewport and you see this kind of universe of blackness with a pulsing bioluminescent light. So it's, it's really like going to another planet. And he too had joined the world in hoping that things would be okay. The collective imagination of the world is fastened on this because we're all caught in this kind of the swirl of emotion, emotions of fear and sadness and and hope and uncertainty. Uh, we're putting a little emphasis, a little emphasis on the so- hope side of this. Dr. Joe McInnes with Gavin on the news at one, and a truly horrific loss of life. Later on the same news programme, another tragedy at sea. A migrant ship went down off the coast of Tunisia when 11 people drowned after a boat carrying 40 people trying to reach Europe capsized. Porrick O'Brien is foreign correspondent with Channel 4 News and in Tunisia. What do you know of what happened? Um, well, Gab, just to give you some context, at about 8am this morning, we were out news gathering. We weren't expecting to see what uh, we ended up seeing. We just happened to stop by a small fishing harbour called Elusa. It's north of the city of Sfax in Tunisia. And this was the scene we stumbled across. Um, there was a large group of migrants and asylum seekers had just been brought to port by the Coast Guard there. They were part of a larger group of 40 people that were on a boat that had capsized at around 10pm last night. To give you a sense of the people that we met on that harbour, we met a woman called Baraka from Côte d'Ivoire. She had spent nine hours in the water. She was seven months pregnant. Of the 40 people on the boat, 11 people drowned. So there was a man called Ali lying on the harbour under a blanket from Burkina Faso. He had drowned. His friend, Rasid, was sort of sitting huddled by the body, didn't want to leave it. Uh, They were rescued about an hour before we arrived, this group. We were told by the Coast Guard that as the day goes on, those other, the bodies of those other people who drowned will be washed up on the coast all throughout the day. But what really struck me, I've been covering the sort of migration refugee story for many years now, but what struck me was that the fishermen we spoke to on the scene said this is happening several times a week there, every week for months now. And the big tragedies, you know, like the one off the coast of Greece last week, they're global headlines 
headlines. But we were told that this one we experienced today is unlikely to even make the local news here. From Wednesday's News at One. All this week, Ireland and neutrality. It's complicated and contentious. Could I, I also say, I think the most undemocratic thing you could do is try and shut down debate. And that's what you're trying to do here this morning. You are trying to shut down debate. You're behaving in a manner, you're behaving in a manner that's intolerant of the freedom of speech. You don't want to allow other views to come forward. What you are saying is debate on your terms and on nobody else's terms. But that's not what we're going to do today. We're going to debate these issues. Minister for Foreign Affairs and Defence and Thornish Sam Micheál Martin responding to anti-NATO protesters and all of this on the very first day of the government's consultative forum on international security policy. Who knew this four-day talking shop would get so heated? Scroll back to the start of the week, a Sunday Business Post interview with President Michael D. Higgins. Ireland playing with fire over their dangerous drift towards NATO. He also criticised the makeup of the forums, panels, the admirals, the generals, the Air Force and the rest of it. And then Chair of the Forum, Professor Louise Richardson and her DBE, a throwaway remark for which he would later apologise. But one way or the other, the debate on our security and defence was on. If only we could define our terms. On Wednesday's late debate, joining Barry Lenehan, independent TD and former member of the Irish Defence Forces, Carl Berry. Um, what do you think is the most pressing issue with regards to international security facing this country at the moment? I think the, the very first thing is to be able to talk about defence and security. It's like a taboo subject. Mm. If it's brought up, you're labelled and demonised as a warmonger for even having the temerity to, to raise it. So I think like I'm looking forward to going on to UCC tomorrow morning. Um, we'll be able to talk about defence for the first time in a long time um, over a four-day period. And I think the number one priority should be to define what we mean by neutrality. So we're all talking about this word, but everyone seems to have a different interpretation to what it is. So is it pacifism? Is it armed neutrality? And that wouldn't be unusual because it's okay for individuals to have a different view of neutrality because countries have a different view of neutrality. Like like Switzerland is regarded as a super neutral. It has conscription, massive arms industry, they export arms and they actually guard the Vatican City as well, another sovereign state. So that's their version of neutrality. And I think it'd be very, very useful for us to define what ours is. And what is ours, do you think? Well, the, the general consensus is that we don't formally join a formal defence alliance and that we have no mutual defence arrangement with another country. So that's what the definition is, the accepted definition at the moment. But we should go down with an open mind and see what other people have to say. But what that means is anything outside that is open for discussion. For instance, last week we sent a military helicopter to Northern Ireland to help them fight uh, wildfires. Last weekend we sent 10 uh, army medics to Britain to participate in an exercise, a competition over there. So generally people are accepting of these cooperative arrangements on a case-by-case basis because that's what we've always done. On a case-by-case basis we're very good at cooperation but it'd be good to define what neutrality is and then work on where the common ground is for everybody in relation to where we go from here. So we're neutral, except when we're kind of not. However, a very different view from People Before Profit Solidarity TD, Mick Barry. Well, I think for uh, the ordinary Irish person, uh, neutrality means that we stay away from the big military power blocks. Um, I think that Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael uh, have been trying for a long time to move away from that concept of neutrality. I understand that more than three million 
American troops, obviously some of them have gone several times, uh, have passed through Shannon uh, down through uh, the years. And I think that um, I think that Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael uh, see the current crossroads that we're at in international affairs with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, brutal invasion of Ukraine, as an opportunity to advance an agenda. And I think what they're aiming for, I think they know that NATO membership is not a runner, at least in the short term, because of public opposition. But I think they're aiming for increased military cooperation with imperial powers in Europe, uh, significantly increased defence spending, and a de facto associate membership of uh, NATO. And I think this forum that kicks off in Cork tomorrow is an attempt to begin to soften up public opinion for that. But the forum did begin and one of the speakers attending was Edward Burke, Assistant Professor in the History of War at UCD. He spoke to Anya on Morning Ireland. Is Irish neutrality the same, but the context for Irish neutrality now very different? I think, frankly, um, you know, Irish neutrality means uh, a great deal at home, but it's sometimes poorly understood abroad in terms of, you know, um, what we mean when we say we're politically neutral, but you know, we cannot um, supply funds for Ukraine to defend itself with ammunition. Militarily, but not yeah. politically neutral is the line. Yeah. Ab- absolutely. I think that's poorly understood, particularly by some other EU member states. You showed a lot of solidarity to Ireland in recent times over Brexit. Mm-hmm. And, you know, frankly, they, you know, when, when President Higgins came out and said that, Ireland was somehow morally superior to the Baltic states. I think that was that went down quite badly in those countries. But there is a concern, isn't there, that post-Ukraine, and I mean, it's been various statements from Macron, so on people can point to, that, you know, Europe is going in a more militaristic direction. Are, are we being swept along in that tide? I think European democracies are under attack, and that's something that we have to recognise. So we've got, you know, the greatest, la- the greatest war in Europe since 1945. It is a war of aggression. It is it a war of atrocity? I think it's reasonable for European countries to respond to that. And to the EU, we've also seen, you know, uh, an intense uh, disinformation campaign against European democracies that is emanating from Russia since the invasion of Ukraine. That's been documented um, very much by the European Parliament. And we also have seen, you know, increased naval activity in the North Atlantic, particularly off the Irish coast. Um, and again, the European Parliament is very clear on that. They, yeah. they see that as a threat to free, open and secure circulation of data, and not least a threat to the subsea cables off the Irish coast. So this is a huge issue, not only for um, Irish citizens and their, their democracy, their, their rights, their freedoms, but also for 400 million other EU citizens yeah. who care very much about that. From Morning Ireland, back in a bit. Welcome back. Now we're in part three and at this point of playback you might be forgiven for thinking there wasn't any bit of crack at all on the radio this week. There was. But chuckles galore, not quite. However, Ray is back from his holidays. He went to Spain. Eight and a half out of ten I'd say. Points lost for this. (laughs) Mosquitoes bitten to flithers they were. It got to the end of the week and we were having the uh, MMBAs the most mosquito bites awards in our family. Jenny won well into the 40s bites uh, in a week. But on the bright side back home they got an item out of it quite a fascinating one. Here is Dr Graham Fry of the Tropical Medical Bureau. And, and what happens when they bite us? What's the, what's the, the okay. physical action? Okay, well, the reason is that they want to drink. They want to drink a blood, and they, the female needs that for her own energy to provide for her own offspring. But unfortunately, her little needle is very, very small. It's a minuscule hypodermic type, type needle. And your actual blood is very thick and viscous. So when she bites you, nothing, nothing happens. She can't suck your blood up. So to make it easier, she injects saliva down through her needle, 
which anticoagulates your actual blood, and then she can suck it up. So that's what's the actual mechanics of a bite. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> it's not lunchtime, is it? No. Close enough, though, but we're right in it and may as well get all the gory details. So, so then we have a bit of saliva, a bit of, a bit of mosquito saliva in our system. Um, and, yeah. and what, we react to that then, do we? Yeah, well, that's why you often hear people saying, oh, I, I, I get bitten constantly, and, and yet somebody else says that, that they don't. We actually all get bitten. Everyone gets bitten. It's just some people react and some people don't. That's all we're talking about. And it's an allergy response to the saliva. So if you have an allergy, you actually know it. You, you know you're being bitten. If you don't, I actually don't, which is not safe. It's not the best way to be, because I don't think I'm being bitten until I see someone else close by being bitten. Then I understand, yeah, yeah, I'm being bitten. Because I was under the illusion that I, like, up until this holiday, I, I'd rarely been bitten before. Nothing of note uh, until th- this last week. So I, I thought that there was something, some uh, deodorant I was using, some food I was eating, something you know, something different about me that didn't attract mosquitoes. Well, it certainly could have been quite a number of those things as well, but that's uh-huh. a separate issue. It just could have been the specific strain of mosquito that was biting you on that last trip was just something you have an allergy to the uh-huh. saliva, whereas the previous one you didn't. But don't forget, they're also attracted by dark colours and they're attracted by smell, and that's any smell. So we're talking about perfumes, deodorants, aftershaves, shampoos, sunblock, any of those things, and perspiration, which is why you get bitten around the ankles. And the third thing, just to bear in mind, which people don't understand, if you put on a huge amount of repellent, that will actually attract them towards you. Right. Because it becomes a smell in itself. And all those things you heard that might just repel them, not necessarily backed by science. The garlic tablets, vitamin B tablets, neither of those have any work. effect whatsoever. Okay. Right. Nor, nor the sound-inducing little machines you often see people selling. Right. They, they don't. Mosquitoes are deaf. They actually can't hear anything, which is fortunate for them, because otherwise with that noise, they would go deaf pretty yes, quickly. Yes. Anyway. <laughs> Horrible noise. Thanks, thanks, right? <laughs> that's, I thought it was a very good impersonation. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's, my, that's my party piece from here on in, Graham. <laughs> Musically, we're all about the Spotify and the TikTok now. And if you want to make money, as Adam Maguire told Claire, it is all about the hook. Spotify, for example, pays out on a stream when a person has listened for at least 30 seconds. Uh, others uh, uh, put it in different places. So, it, you know, it, it's a certain percentage of the song. But it essentially means the same thing that if someone starts listening to your song, gets bored or decides it's not for them after 10 or 20 seconds and skips, you don't get anything for that at all. You need to keep them listening for at least 30 seconds in order to get paid for, for that stream. So it's really important then to, to keep people listening. And that's why putting the hook at the start, giving them something catchy or something to make them think, oh, this sounds like a song I like is really, really important. But that payment structure also has another perverse incentive or, or a disincentive because an artist doesn't get paid anything extra for what comes after that 30 seconds or that percentage of the song. So you could craft an amazing five or, or 10 minute song, put a lot of effort into it. You're not going to get paid any more than, a, you know, a kind of throwaway two minute pop song because once you hit the 30 second mark, you get paid or if they don't, you don't get paid. Mm-hmm. So as a result of that, we're seeing songs getting shorter and shorter as well. At the average length of, of a song on the Billboard 100 has fallen from almost five minutes in the 80s that was at the peak to about three and a half minutes a day and it's in the last 10 years really it's fallen quite sharply we now have uh, more two minute songs than we've had since the 1960s because it's just you know get them in get them listening and, and move them on to the next driven song. by economics Claire sounding uncharacteristically wide eyed 
And on Arena, film director Wes Anderson, The Royal Tenenbaums, The Fantastic Mr. Fox, Grand Budapest Hotel and others. And his distinctive style has been imitated by AI for some fake film trailers, which doesn't appear to bother him too much. In relation to my own, the, the maiming of myself, I, I, I've managed to recuse myself from that. And I, I don't see any of it. You know, the only thing I would maybe would like to have is is, is I'd like to AI uh, some kind of copyright attorney and see if it can algorithm me some kind of royalty from some of this. But I don't, <laughs> I don't, I'm sure that's not going to happen. Um, I don't find AI as ominous as as I might. Um, I I you know I, what I say is if I if when you sit and think about it and when you read what people are saying about it you start to say this is kind of doomsday and doomsday for a lot of creative work. But I can't say that it, I find myself obsessed with it. I then just carry on. And I, I mean, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see where that all leads. You know, what can it do? What are its limits? Things do have limits, even when they seem uh, a bit a bit limitless like this. Um, I don't know. Has AI done a really good joke? I'm not sure, but video didn't kill the radio star. I doubt AI will kill the OTR. Exactly. <laughs> Ooh, groan, but we will let Sean off that one, excited as he was, because this was Wes Anderson's only Irish interview, so a bit of a coup. Now, he was talking about his new film, Asteroid City, and what a cast he has. Adrian Brody, Steve Carell, Jarvis Cocker, Brian Cranston, Willem Dafoe, Hope Davis, Matt Dillon, Tom Hanks, Scarlett Johansson, Edward Norton, Margaret Robbie, Jason Schwartzman, Tilda Swinton, and the list actually goes on from there. Is there anybody left in LA at all? And there was a lot going on in this film. A tale within a tale. UFOs, genius kids, the desert, and set in the 1950s. This is a film about a TV show about a play. It it really tells us how the story is told. Why did you want to tell it that way? When you're, I, I'm, in my experience, when you're writing a movie, you the first there's your intentions, and then there's whatever the thing just wants to become. The you know, my intention was I wanted to write a role for Jason Schwartzman, and I wanted to tell a story about this father traveling across the country with his children who, who had experienced something catastrophic in his in his family and and that story most of the movies a play within a television show within a film and it's extremely complicated and even the description of this movie has probably got listeners extremely confused um, but I think the way it's told is actually quite careful and you can experience the story without this all being a distraction. Can we? Well, we will let arena reviewers be the judge of that. Here is Paul Whittington and Tara Brady. The people who love it are very often, very often saying exactly the same things about it as the people who hate it. Yeah. That it's that it's Anderson distilled. Yeah. That it's completely style over substance. And there's nothing really going on. Are on you on one the runner of those extremes? Um, I'm kind of in the middle. I, yeah, because I think it's a really beautiful thing, but I don't think all the layers work. Um, I, I, I think I liked this film more than, a bit more than Tara did because I it, it was a bit less glib than his films sometimes can be. And also I thought at the start, I thought this is going to annoy me. And then for some reason it didn't. Um, it is absolutely beautifully made. Uh, the, the, the way he makes things is so particular, so much detail, so many layers, so much that doesn't need to be there. And that, in my opinion, adds to it is in there. But I also think that in a strange way, he's he's kind of asking you 
you know, like any time we watch a film, we know it's a film, but, but we suspend our disbelief because we need stories. He's sort of adding two layers to that here. And in a way, he's saying, can you still care about it? Now, obviously, perhaps Sarah couldn't, but uh, but in a way, I did. Yeah. Stars uh, overall from you, Paul? Uh, for me, four. A, a solid four from you. I don't think you're quite there, no, Tara. No, I have three. I'm definitely, definitely split and down And generously at that, you would say, y- Tara, would you? Y- yeah. Y- yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, it has been quite the week in terms of weather. Sloshing around in flash floods, rolling thunder, nothing if not dramatic. And the answer to the question that we should probably know already from school, but do we? How exactly does lightning work? When you have um, updrafts of air taking warm air from the ground up into the colder upper atmosphere, and that that, uh, causes ice crystals to form. And when those ice crystals in the cumulus cloud rub together, it's it's like rubbing a jumper against a... Uh, rubbing a balloon against a jumper, it generates electricity and, and the, the the updraft in the cloud separates that electricity to generate a, an electric field and when that gets big enough, the electrical current can jump back down to ground again. Well, that is a much more comprehensive explanation than I give my children when they ask me, I have to say. Oh, I think we all got a lesson there. Thanks to Professor Chris Scott from the Department of Meteorology at the University of Reading. And then the follow-up question. They also ask me this, what are the chances of getting hit by lightning? Well, yeah, statistics are are, um, uh, very um, hard to to gather worldwide on this, but the World Health Organization um, did some analysis and the lightning deaths per year worldwide is about 24,000 people, but that compares with over a million people killed by traffic and 48 uh, 480,000 killed by malaria. So there are there are bigger risks. And and it also depends whereabouts you are in the world. There's a, um, a country, uh, Malawi in, in Africa, that has um, the highest um, deaths per um, capita uh, in, in, in the world because it has a, a very large lake that runs the length of the country and lots of um, people fishing on the lake with, um, with, with metal fishing rods which can attract the lightning. And so th- that, that's a particularly perilous place to be. And then this very specific question from Cormac, off on his holidays overseas soon, perhaps. So what are the odds, Chris, of being hit by lightning when in a plane in the air? <laughs> well, I, I don't know that it's, I, I don't know what the precise number, but I can say that it's not non-zero because I've been in a plane that was struck yeah. by lightning. And it's quite <laughs> it's happened to you. What, what was it like? <laughs> I was taking off from Heathrow to go to, uh, to Colorado for a, a, a science meeting and we got struck by lightning almost as soon as we'd taken off and there was a, an, a mighty bang and a big cloud of shower of sparks around the plane and the pilot was very stoical. He came on the radio and said, um, well, we've just been struck by lightning, but uh, <laughs> uh, if there's any consolation, uh, I don't like it any more than you do. And yeah, we carried on, we carried on to America. It was, it was, it was quite something. And, and you were screaming, let me off. Me. I will be screaming, let me off. <laughs> were you as stoical as a pilot, the- Chris? Well, the guy sat next to me, turned to me and said, it's OK, I have my spare underwear in my hand luggage. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, it was, it was quite so. So it's very spectacular. But actually, lightning striking planes is, is not actually a very big deal because they're made of metal and the, the, the electricity just flows around the outside of the plane. So um, everything inside the plane was, was fine. And it, it does happen much more um, often than, uh, than, than you'd expect. And finally, go stand under a tree poor advice. What about the idea of the tallest structure, you know, the tree or the pole or whatever it might be? Mm, yeah, so if you are caught out in lightning, you best avoid standing near trees um, or any tall structures because if they conduct electricity, they can actually um, 
concentrate the the electric field in the air, and that uh, it makes it much more likely that lightning can find a way to ground uh, around those places. Um, so. With with trees, if the lightning does strike the tree, it actually the danger is is not so much the electricity, although that is obviously a worry, but uh, it causes the sap in the tree to boil and then the bark explodes off the tree. So there's lots of shrapnel that flying around if you're if if lightning does strike a tree. So you don't have to be electrocuted to be impacted by lightning. But to be injured. Boiling sap, exploding bark. It's been that kind of a week. That's it for this week's playback. Thank you for listening. Talk to you next week.